Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Ever since the California gold rush kicked off in 1848, America has been fascinated by the West, what it might be and what it could be. A few years later, in 1861, the artist Carlton Watkins effectively introduced Easterners to what the West actually looked like with a series of photographs of Yosemite Valley. Watkins and other photographers continued to make the pictures that informed the American imagination about the West up until Hollywood took over. My guests this week, Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler, pick up the story from there in a major trilogy that examines how cinema has created more recent Western mythologies, especially our idea of Texas. Their work is now the subject of an exhibition at the Blaffer Art Museum at the University of Houston. Titled Sound Speed Marker, the show features sculpture, photography, and three video installations, 2009's Grand Paris, Texas, Movie Mountain from 2011, and last year's Giant, that look at how the movies have made the West. The show was organized by Ballroom Marfa and traveled to the Irish Museum of Modern Art before arriving at the Blaffer, where it will be on view through September 5th. On the second segment, Audrey Lewis will tell us about her new exhibition, Horace Pippin, The Way I See It, which is at the Brandywine River Museum of Art through July 19th. Once considered a naive or folk artist, Pippin's scenes of war, African-American life, and portraits are now understood to be significant works of early American modernism. First, Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler, after the break. Discover the avant-garde photography of two artists whose witty and surreal works explore portraiture, social concerns, and dreams in the exhibition From Bauhaus to Buenos Aires, Greta Stern and Horacio Coppola, now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Find out more at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. The Hammer Museum presents Mark Bradford, Scorched Earth, the artist's first solo museum exhibition in Los Angeles. Comprising 12 paintings, including a large-scale work on the Hammer's lobby wall and a sound installation titled Spider-Man, this new body of work refers to formative moments in the artist's life and contemplates the body in crisis. Scorched Earth brings together Bradford's artistic practice, social activism, and history as a native Angelino. On view June 20th to September 27th, 2015. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. So we're talking on the occasion of an exhibition of, of three works of yours. Did they start as a trilogy? Did they become a trilogy? And is the order in which you made them the same order in which you considered them? It didn't start it as a trilogy. We started with Grand Paris, Texas in 2009, and we proceeded with Movie Mountain Meliès in 2011, which was finished in 2011, and Giant, which was finished in 2014. We tend to work on trilogies but or, or a series of photographs or a series of videos. Usually, I think... We have talked about this in, in previous conversations. It seems there's some, something about the fact that we can a collective. There's two of us. And in series, we can sort of express maybe the multitude of ideas that we have. We can work them out. So the, the, the exhibition, Sound Speed Marker, it, it actually consists of more than just the three video installations. There's several bodies of photographic work, but there's also an outdoor sculpture which I'm not sure if you saw it, but it's it's right outside. It's called Missing Truffaut. And I think that for us with with within this body of work, one of the parameters that I think we both were interested in was to embark on a journey of not of unknowing, of not knowing where we were gonna end up and wanting to follow multiple and sort of complex strands that would necessitate a commitment to a site. Each component in the, the trilogy of the, the videos invited and, and demanded spending extended periods of time and going repeatedly to a place, the opposite of flying in or driving in and getting the shots and leaving. A lot of this journey was necessitated by a sense of duration, of spending time in a place, and time in archives, time with the people at the place. The kind of theme that runs through 
all three of the video pieces is the mythology of the West and how it happened. How did you become interested in the West and kind of the historiography of the mythology, if that's, that's a phrase? <laughs> in 2001, I think spring 2001, we moved to, from Berlin to Austin, Texas. So um, since then, we, we are based in Austin. So it is, in, in some ways, it, it is the place where we live, the place where we produce our work. And it kind of started with a coincidence. I don't think we're really specifically interested in the West as much as we're probably closer in, interested in, like, the, the more about the mythology about Hollywood, but, of course, they're tied together. So uh, Sansby Marcus specifically started with the place Paris, Texas, and we both, I was in um, early 20s, Teresa, still in her teens. Uh, we both saw Wim Wenders uh, Paris, Texas, and I think that kind of links this, uh, it links us kind of into this place of Paris, Texas, because of course this was all about a German filmmaker going to Texas and finding this incredible site and using that as a script, uh, using it as a, as a site to make, to make a film, but from a kind of a European probably perspective. And so uh, Teresa grew up in Australia, I grew up in Switzerland, and so I think this was sort of a common link, an idea of the West that obviously was not, it's, it's never, it's ne you know, it never matches a reality, it, it matches an image, and so we were following that image. I think it stems from a, a curiosity about, yeah, this differential between how, how a place is mediated over time or mythologized through cinema over time, versus what, so I guess maybe one deals with being vague and being general. We're interested in specificity. We're interested in the difference between the image baggage that we bring from our, our backgrounds to an actual place, and then what's actually there, and what that, what that space between actually is. I think that in a, yeah, in a tangible sense, we're interested in the potential of unspectacular sites. So an example would be when we were with a, a rancher in Sierra Blanca, which is near the border of Mexico. He was interested in showing us a, a very specific, beautiful part of his ranch. And on the way to the ranch, he sort of nonchalantly gestured, oh, and over there, there's this place. It's just that, you know, bump over there. It's called Movie Mountain. And it was really... It's those kinds of places that interest us a lot more than the scenic or the Hollywood star. We're interested in all of the things behind that that hold up that kind of illusion. So one of the things that's interesting about that for me is sound is important in, in all three and in, in Giant and Movie Mountain in particular. Sound is made visual by the presence of a, a, a character that kind of, I don't know, the narrative isn't built around, but but that serves as a thread. How did you get to sound as being so central? It's really, I'm really interested in, in what listening looks like. In a way, the, the sound recordists that appear in Movie Mountain and in Giant, they are, you know, they're, they're playing themselves in the sense that they're part of our film crew and that's actually what they're, they're doing. But more than that, it's almost, I see them, I guess I see all the components of the, the, the film crew, all of the, the members of the film crew in the scope of this trilogy is they're, they're almost, there's something anthropological about them. I see that the, the, the sound recordist with the, the windsock that's called the dead cat, that they're, they're in, in a way kind of measuring and deeply listening as as a as a as a presence, and maybe even as a kind of placeholder. So, are you almost suggesting that sound is less fictionable than visuals because so much of the visuals of the American West have kind of served the mythology of the West? Are you suggesting that sound can't be fictionalized that way? Not at all. I think what what is what is definitely also happening is there's this slippage between throughout both Movie Mountain and Giant. There's a slippage of what we're 
what we're seeing and what we're hearing and also the close-ups of the sound recorders actually mixing, which is another form of, I say, sort of authorship, of, of, of uh, sort of reauthoring what's actually in that location. Again, I would say the same thing that Teresa mean, uh, says in terms of it's even more, fi- it, 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 it can enhance the fiction. Mm-hmm. So when we started using sound or we, I mean, we, from the beginning we worked with a moving image, but mostly in the 90, during the 90s, Teresa and I, we made photographic series, photo, stage photographic work. And in, in around 2000, when we actually moved to the United States, we started working predominantly with the moving image. And at the beginning, I think the soundscape was more in the background. And as we developed our work, it's more and more coming in the foreground. And I think we understand um, that the sound can create another space, an additional space, a space. We were always interested. The, the move basically from, from photography into the moving image was kind of very specific moment where we, because we examined always the frames of a photograph, the edges of a photograph, and it sort of was almost a, a linear transition to, to go from a still image to a moving image. And so the sound is kind of, it follows this trajectory where we realize that the sound allows us to contextualize the edge, like what is not seen but what is heard, and it opens up into a, a new space. And I think in, in Soundspeed Marker, in this trilogy, sound becomes so important because unlike the earlier video pieces from 2000 to maybe 2007, we also kind of break the illusion of the, the sort of immersive space. So we use like... Brechtian strategies kind of to we expand the idea of the lens like we show no longer a 90 degree perspective we, we actually show a, a, a 360 degree perspective so we actually turn the camera always constantly around and we we see a crew we see sound recorders uh, as being part of the narrative so we kind of deconstruct the story as we build the story. So you, you, you just referred to a little bit of the way that you kind of break the fourth wall in the, in the pieces, and I want to get to that in a bit. But, but before we do, so there's a very specific decision to include a sound recordist, you know, wh- whom we actually see with equipment walking through landscapes in one, one piece of a trilogy. But to be willing to do that in not just one piece of a trilogy seems to me to be a very specific decision. And I wonder why. It's important in Giant specifically that the, the work is bookended by two female protagonists. And one who listens and one who generates, literally sort of thumps out the landscape upon which through typing up the, the location contract. I should quickly explain that in, in Giant, the other female is a typist who's typing out the contract that determines what a rancher provides for the set of Giant. And so one, one sound recordist, or the sound recordist in the film is a female and the typist is a female. Yes. So it became absolutely a conscious decision with Giant that there would be, yeah, that the piece would be bookended by these two female characters, both who work in the business of filmmaking, one in a you know, the the secretary in 1955 who's generating the contract in a Warner Brothers office and the other that is working on field recordings of the what's left of the set from the film of Giant. And that decision, that decision for me came from the source material itself, Edna Ferber's novel and the, the film of Giant itself, which, I mean, both of those items are about many things, Fundamentally for me, it's about female protagonist who struggles with the role in which she's been placed. So the idea of picking up a sound recordist again in, in Giant, it was obvious to me that, that it needed to be a female. Yeah, and just, I mean, uh, to add, so Teresa is referring to the role of Elizabeth Taylor for people who might not have seen Giant or will, will, might watch it later again. So a woman that is surrounded by men, basically, and is sort of put in, in, in her place. She is not supposed to take on any of the responsibility on the ranch. 
that she just married into. So I think that was very early on we realized that the idea of this female protagonist kind of is an important part of the story in Giant. I think the other element why the sound recorders became dominant in Giant is because the set that we actually found, so this remnant of this Victorian mansion that was built in West Texas, this two-story house, when we visited it first time, we recognized it as a, as a sound sculpture. So it's this uh, two-story skeleton of a, of a house um, that makes an incredible sound as it moves in the wind and has been there for more than 60 years. And so that kind of led us to the idea of sound recorders. But in, in, in all three parts of the trilogy, there is a sound recordist. It's, he, he briefly, there's two men. They're briefly, like in, in Grand Paris, Texas, there's a brief appearance in Movie Mountain, there's sort of a, a bookend, the beginning and end part of a, a male sound recordist, and then in Giant, that kind of that role becomes in the foreground. One of the ways sound plays in Giant is there's kind of a, at least for me, there's kind of a relationship between or a synchronicity between the sound of the typist typing and the sound of rainfall in West Texas. Why was that important, and are there places you think where you line up similar similar tracks, not to make a bad pun, in the other in the other two pieces? I think that's a really insightful observation, and it, it shows a, an attentiveness towards the work, which I think so much of all of these pieces are about attentiveness. Literally, we wanted moments of different kinds of analogous collisions between these two figures in these two different remote these these two different locations and two different times so yes we 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 definitely wanted this association of of text being formed with rain that's falling on on a tin almost almost as though the dialogue what happens with the soundscape of the set of giant is that actually that is the dialogue. That is the spoken dialogue. The sounds that that creaking ship of a house makes with the cycles of life and death and the weather patterns that, that strike or live around it, that's language, almost akin to spoken words. So there's, there's several times throughout the piece where the sounds that are happening in the Warner Brothers office in 1955 and the soundscape of the the location from Giant, they kind of layer or, or intersect with each other. Visually, there are also moments where there's this idea of returning a line on a, on a manual typewriter where, where a text is rolled up and the carriage sweeps all the way across. There's visual analogous moments happening on the set with the passing of the train and the, 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 the sheer sort of movement of a landscape of ants that, that, that cross from, from left to right. So there's, there's a lot of parallels in that way. Maybe I should just talk a little bit about these two moments of these protagonists. So because they're two specific times. So the female protagonist, she's, it's a scene that actually takes place in Burbank, California, and the, uh, the Warner Brothers office. So she's typing up the contract, the location contract for the film that is then shot in 1956. So she types this up about a year before. We, 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 we found this contract, and when we, about a year into filming this location, this remnant of the set, and so the other scene is we cutting back to what we have shot over a period of about two years to this female sound protagonist who, which she's visit, visit, she seems to visit the set on, on several occasions and records the sound. So this is kind of the framework, and we go back and forth. And the rain, so go back to the rain, I think important also is to mention that in the Sunspeed Marker trilogy, there is, a, in the first two parts, Grand Paris, Texas, and Movie Mountain Melies, there is a dialogue, there's spoken dialogue, whereas in the, uh, whereas in the, in Giant, there's no dialogue. So the only written word, or there's only a written word, which is the contract, 
and there's ambient sound. And so rain was became so central that when we were filming the set over, we started maybe three uh, period, we started getting access to the location three years. It took us three years from the moment to get access to the moment when we actually finished the piece. It didn't rain for almost two years. And it's interesting as we speak here in Houston with all the fl- recent floods in Texas that uh, Texas just went through a major drought period. And actually, right now, the drought in many places in Texas is over. So we were waiting for rain for a long period. And when it actually rained, it was a, an incredible event. And to be able to capture rain at that location. So rain is, is very, very central, I guess, to that landscape to the west. And so it rained on occasions, maybe a minute or less. And then eventually it rained. And because it rained, that was also a possibility to get uh, more access to the location because there was always a fear that the whole landscape, there was a lot of uh, wildfires at the time when we started filming the, the set. The piece of the three that deals most with narrative is Movie Mountain, which has a, a cowboy who wears a particularly tremendous shirt that I wish I owned as kind of the centerpiece of, of, of the work. The piece is in many ways an examination of who controls the narrative of the West. Now, that happens in the other, other two as well. One giant is more for me anyway, about, about sound and, and landscape. And, and the third piece is more about kind of the place you go to see the West, which in your film happens to be in the West, but isn't necessarily. How did you find the main character in Movie Mountain as your way to address narrative and narratives of the West? As a working artist, it's not lost on me how, how fragile the process is between working and not working success and failure and you know constantly taking a chance or a risk in terms of a a direction or a path to take or a path not chosen in the course of making a creative work and when we met David Armstrong he he was compelling because he had also tried to make a film and had also uh, for a period of his life made several attempts at at entering a creative field so he tried to become an actor he he wrote a script that got very close to being green lighted but he wanted to maintain some some agency with his own project he felt as though he wanted to play a part as he said not a didn't have to be a big part but he 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 very much wanted to participate in this thing he'd created. And it was fragile. It just didn't work out. And so there was something about his, his experience, his honesty with us, the trust that he placed in us, that it just seemed very, very compelling because he, he not only had these elements about his life, is that for... For many, many years, he's wrangled cattle around Movie Mountain that, that it seems in some way to be just a, a very compelling a very compelling situation that, that we wanted to try to come to understand. So finding David Armstrong is a, is a good example for, I think, all the three pieces in Sounds of Marker in the way that we, we, we set out, once we find sort of a location, one of these three locations, we sort of make a commitment without knowing where we where the piece will end up, and so David Armstrong came in not at the very beginning of the story. He eventually came into play when we tried to get access to this location, which we then researched, which is called Movie Mountain, which we first just heard through this ranger that casually mentioned. I think it's called Movie Mountain, and so a week or two weeks later in Austin, we started researching the location. So we first, of course, would go to Google Maps, and there it is. It actually exists. And then we would start looking at, at historic maps and try to find out how long does this name actually exist on, 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 on maps. And we find out, so it must have been gotten the name sometimes between 1910 to maybe 1930. So eventually we tried to get access to this movie mountain and so we came we met David Armstrong and at the beginning I think he was just presented to us so he presented himself 
as a ranch hand, as a person who takes care of a piece of land and herding some cattle around this piece of land, and he would be the person that we could get access to this location. And eventually, as we would visit again and again, we would go there over a period of, uh, of one year and meeting different people from uh, near Sierra Blanca, he would open up to us and he would start telling more and more about it. So he's not just a ranch hand. He used to be, wanted to be an actor. He, wrote, he tried to write a script. He wanted to be a director. He was a, a crop duster. And so I think that's a good example where we, we discovered this narrative as, as continuous spending time and also the trust that he gave us. So it was a very delicate, it's a very delicate balance to not misuse the trust. But of course, he was a, he was, he became the subject of our movie. So kind of the third piece of the presentation of the West is the place of that presentation. In, in Paris, Texas, you use, you use the theater that happens to be in Paris, Texas, and other methods such as, you know, VHS tapes and so on. You could have chosen a, a movie theater in New Hampshire or something because, you know, the West, you know, the visual idea of the filmic West happened all over the country and not just in the West. Why was using a Western theater, seizing on that as the place, useful or, or good or just felt like the right thing? Well, we, on a, on a road trip back from teaching up in the graduate program at Bard College one summer, we decided specifically to take a detour and taking detours has over the last years been increasingly exciting and important. <laughs> so we took a detour to Paris, Texas. Again, as, as as Alex mentioned earlier, you know, we had grown up in different places outside of the U.S., but both of us had seen Paris, Texas, and in 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 passing through Texas, we decided to take a detour and actually see the town. And as what we do when we go through a lot of small towns is we stop to look at the state of the of cinema in that town. For many years, we've been working on a, a series of photographs called film stills. And these are frontal images of, I say, dead or dying cinema facades. And what triggered something specifically in Paris was, you know, the dichotomy between the name of the theater, the grand, and, and again, the unspectacular, what it actually was. The theater was closed, but not boarded up. And when we continued on our path back to Austin, we decided that, again, it was a, a hunch or, or just a, a curiosity about wanting to see inside the grand. And so the, the specificity of the place really came from passing through it ourselves, again, having this, having this, this image baggage. You know, uh, Wim Wenders has talked about his sensitivity towards looking at, at, at films. He, he thinks of them as, as sort of parasitic in nature, and once you've seen something, you can't unsee it. So he's described in an interview that I read a while ago that sometimes if he'll get up and he'll, he'll leave a film because he doesn't want that, that, that baggage. And it's precisely that kind of baggage, why, why we stopped in Paris and why, why we were specifically interested in that theater, particularly when we found out more about it, that the town had actually done a premiere of of Wender's film and that everyone was surprised that it used the name of their town but had nothing to do with their town, this slippage between the place, the myth of the place, and the actuality, the specificity of a place. So the moment where we actually were able to enter the cinema, so the grand, is uh, maybe then three weeks later, we, we, we got hold of the, the town, townspeople in, in Paris, City, this Chamber of Commerce, that would basically arrange a meeting. So we would go in front of the Grand, and there were a couple city workers. They had a generator organized because there was no electricity anymore. They gave us some so they could light the entranceway. They gave, gave us some flashlights, some uh, dust masks, and they basically opened the door and said, here, go and have a look at it. 
And we would walk in a couple steps, and we realized nobody would follow us. So there were five, six people with us. And we kind of turned around, and we were kind of slightly irritated, nervous, didn't understand what's going on, but we kept going so that they, would, they wouldn't follow us. And I would go ahead, Teresa followed me, and I kind of turned into the main auditorium. Everything was dark, but I would hear all these pigeons, and there were hundreds of birds inside this movie theater. And the, the, the amazing thing is, so I basically turned just, around, just hearing that sound. It was actually the sound that triggered this moment, but I would just turn around to Teresa and said, this is the place, this is it. I knew, I think we both knew from this moment on that this is the place we should start making a piece without having any idea what would lead to, to this story that we actually found out that this film by Wim Wenders was actually screened and so on and so forth. But it was actually the, the moment, the, the, this darkness and the sound of these hundreds of pigeons nesting in this, in this movie theater for almost 10 years. And the amazing thing was that the movie theater was not vandalized, so it was just taken over by nature. And there would be cups in, in between chairs and still the popcorn machine. Everything was just, it looked like they just closed the door and uh, they never returned. So it, it had an incredible story and we eventually tried to find out what was the reason that this movie theater would be in this state. Another kind of thing that runs through more than one of the pieces is the railroad. Railroad's hugely important to the American West, but in terms of the timeline of, of American history, Texas gets the railroad, at least all the way across it, later than other parts of the West. I don't mean to suggest that you went out of your way to include the railroad or that it doesn't fit or that it's disjunctive, but it's obviously an intentional decision. So why was having the railroad in the pieces important? Oh, it's a great question for a number of reasons. I, I think that in each of the pieces, what's coming along for the ride in those works is a certain tracking of obsolescence. And I think that definitely in the town of Sierra Blanca, that used to be in the history of the, the, the railroad in, in Texas, it was, a, it was a hugely important junction between Texas and, and on the way out to the west, to, to California. Every train stopped there. There were hotels there. When as one of the the people that appears in in Movie Mountain says, you know, the train doesn't even stop here anymore. That the idea of literally, not just metaphorically, but literally living in a place where nobody stops at anymore seemed really interesting to us, as, as in almost as you know, almost sort of in partnership with with a bump in the desert that has a grandiose name, Movie Mountain, that, that is, is, is really kind of sort of operates on the level of dysfunctional or pathetic or something that wants, something that's op obsolete. And I think that in a way that, you know, there's, there's all these signs of obsolescence throughout the trilogy from the, the technology of the VHS tape to the 35-millimeter film projector to the traditional cinema itself to the typist typing on a, on a typewriter, that it was the, the train that was the lifeblood for so many of these towns. And when the train literally passes you by, doesn't stop at your town anymore, that just, uh, it was just part and parcel of, of the, the social an economic and physical structure of these places now. I think specifically in the so the train in Movie Mountain Milius is important because we we so we try we're trying to find this film that was shot somewhere between 1910 and 1925. We because we trace down sort of the narrow down when was this film made, and we discover that Gaston Milius, the brother of Georges Milius, the famous. French filmmaker uh, started a company in San Antonio, Texas around 1910 and eventually went bankrupt. It didn't work out. So he decided to board the train with his uh, film company with horses, actors, everything. So this is documented uh, in newspapers. He boarded the train and he moved to, I think it was Santa Barbara, California, and eventually to Hollywood. 
at, at the beginning when Hollywood started. And so we know that he traveled to Sierra Blanca. So he's one of the potential people who actually made this movie. We cannot trace it back. There's a connection, a very loose connection to a local that was living at the train station at the time and owned that uh, and was connected to the owner that owned a piece of land in Movie Mountain. So there's a possibility they were led to Movie Mountain as a location and they would shoot at the time their westerns in less than three days. So there were short films that would produce an incredible amount of films to be distributed. What's interesting is Gaston Melius came to the United States to protect the copyright of his brother. So he became a distributor in order to protect the right of his brother and to be a, become a player in the film business. So the train is a very important part in Movie Mount Melius. But I, I remember in earlier pieces, as far as uh, there's a video piece called Single Wide, in the, which we made in 2002, where the sound of a train is in the background kind of expanding the landscape. And I think it's such a distinct, distinctive sound, the horn of a train, that I, as a European, immediately, this, this puts me in an American landscape, just a, just a distinction of the, the sound of the train, that the train horn sounds different. So this immediately creates sort of a sonic landscape. And so the train has been, from the beginning, very important. I also think, you know, the, the train's just such an important mechanism in the history of film itself when you think about one of the first traveling shots. And indeed, there's a tracking shot in Giant, so you kind of can't. Exactly. There's this moment in Giant where the camera is filming the sound recordist who is recording a swinging post. And, you know, the illusion of the shot speaks to the the illusion that she's alone in the landscape and then all of a sudden the far end of of the the screen the third screen we see a a, a dolly on literally you know tracks that pass in front of her and 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 again that kind of they break that fourth wall and specifically we wanted that 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 tracking shot comes from right to left because in previous scenes the train behind the set goes from left to write. So we wanted in a way that these these tracking mechanisms definitely kind of speak to each other. Maybe just last one more thing about the trains. So in West Texas, all over Texas, I would say, the trains are also an indication of the e economy, and so especially in West Texas. So the, the transportation of people is obsolescent. So the train solely functions or almost exclusively functions as a transportation of goods and in, in West Texas. So it kind of passes, continuously passes the horizon. You see somewhere a, a, an incredible long train passing with goods, and the containers would have these names of uh, international corporations, and a lot of them would be Chinese products basically moving from Los Angeles through Texas and just throughout the country, and uh, uh, it's such a great I indicator of how the economy has changed. So it, it, it's this, what seems to us a very obsolescent technology, still carrying these incredible heavy goods from a different economy throughout the United States. So it's also kind of an indicator, and, and um, so it's a marker, yes. And so the typewriter, the, me the mechanics of the, as a mechanical instrument, the typewriter and the train, they kind of play on the same sort of surface. And so finally, going back to Giant. So Giant, the original Giant, if you will, of course, was, was filmed in Marfa, Texas. So to make your Giant, you, of course, had to go to Marfa, Texas. Is it interesting to you that the viewer might and, and probably would make the connection between that kind of decrepit, almost vernacular remains of a, of a wooden and metal, barely metal, film set and the solid, absolutely not decrepit, very much metal minimalism that Donald Judd left behind? I guess my, my immediate answer would be probably no. The, the location where the set is, is probably about 45 minutes outside of Marfa, and it's not accessible to the, to the public. I can say, though, in all the trips we made and all of the time that we spent, because we were based in Marfa when, while we were, you know, over a period of years where a number of people in the town of Marfa generously housed us extensively over that period of time, 
I think that, as Alexander mentioned earlier, what struck us immediately when we got close to the set itself was we, we, we saw it as an acoustic instrument. We saw it as a sculpture. And I think uh, in, you know, I would, I, would, I would say that maybe there was a, a kind of, we were definitely interested in, in seeing some of the shapes that the set makes in different, from different angles, just cinema, you know, in terms of the cinematography. We were definitely interested in stripping it down, interested in, in uh, minimalism in, in a way. Yeah, I think without minim, minim, minimalism, I think without having experienced that period of, uh, in, in terms of art history, without being exposed to that period of art history, I think we, 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 when we saw the set of giant, when we saw the state of it, and when we saw how little there was left, and we, and we, where we, where we seen in that, in that skeleton, in this almost minimalist sculpture, that there's a potential. I think that, that there's a connection. I do think there's a connection. When uh, when we moved to Texas, I the, the the two places that were important Texas for me was the Menil collection that I knew about and Marfa, Texas, because of Chad. Uh, there's a large large holdings of Donald Chad's work in Basel, where I grew up and where I started studying art. And so Marfa was from the beginning an important place that I would want to visit as soon as I. Uh, would end, uh, come to Texas, and I wasn't aware that Giant was actually shot in Texas. I, I was aware that it was, I assumed it was shot in Texas, but only doing research, we, 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 we found out more about it first time we were in Marfa, because everybody in Marfa, of course, talks about this grandiose moment in 1956. So, and I'm sure that Donald Chad knew about the history, and that probably led him to go to Marfa. But I think, you know, people in Marfa, and for, for quite some time the, the rancher who owned the property himself would tell us, but there's nothing, there's nothing there, there's nothing left. And the more we heard that, the more <laughs> it's like the, the guy that told us, oh, you don't want to film at Movie Mountain, it's not pretty and there's nothing there. That's the kind of, you know, I, I, I think that, that the interest too with his finding uh, a site or an object where, where there, there might seem to be nothing there that, in fact, kind of everything's there. It's kind of revealing about how much the idea of classic pictorial beauty has formed ideas about the American West. Alexander Birchler and Teresa Hubbard, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents a major exhibition of six dynamic and colorful installations on a monumental scale by preeminent British sculptor Phyllida Barlow. Featuring large-scale works created specifically for the Nasher Galleries, the works playfully tower over visitors, creating multiple compelling environments. See the London-based artist's exhibition, Phyllida Barlow Trist, from May 30th through August 30th. For more information, visit nashersculpturecenter.org or call 214-242-5100. Plaffer Art Museum at the University of Houston presents Sound Speed Marker by Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler. In this critically acclaimed trilogy of video installations and related photographs, Texas and its associated cinematic imagery serve as platforms for reflections on filmmaking itself. Also at Plaffer through September 5th, a collaboration by Henning Bowl and Sergi Cherupnin combines sculptures, drawings, and sound into a multidimensional storytelling platform. More at blafferartmuseum.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Audrey Lewis, the associate curator at the Brandywine River Museum of Art. Her new exhibition is Horace Pippin, The Way I See It. It's on view at the Brandywine River Museum through July 19th. Audrey Lewis, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Great to be here. Could you start by giving us a little bit of the background on on Horace Pippin and why now is a good time to do the first big Pippin show in 20 years? Sure. Well, Pippin was born in Westchester, which is about 10 minutes from our museum in Chad's Ford. And he moved away from there when he was about three uh, years old to Goshen, New York. He came back in 1920 after his marriage. In between, he served in the World War One, as part of the all African American 369th Regiment, 
And that was a momentous thing for him. Uh, he later said that the war brought out all the art in him. And he was severely injured in 1918, late 1918. Um, his right arm was shot, and he had to um, learn how to use his arm again. He returned back to the United States in 1919. So then for the next 10 years or so, he really wasn't making art at all. He, was, he did a memoir of the war, which was really important, but he didn't really start doing anything until 1930. And in 1937, he sort of gets discovered, and he becomes well-known throughout the nation, and he has a, a, a wonderful career for the next nine years before he dies in 1946. So just to fill in a couple things, there are paintings in your show as early as the uh, early 1920s, and, and this comes up in a number of, of the essays that scholars contribute to the catalog. How does his injury, his war injury, factor into what he's able to do as an artist, or maybe what he's not able to do as an artist? Well, I think that it gave him very limited mobility, so that most of his works are on the smaller side. They're not miniature, but they are not as large as they could have been. He, for instance, he was asked to do a large uh, painting that was going to be reproduced in Vogue magazine, and it was going to be used in a photo shoot. So he was unable to do that, and they were going to... Let's, un let's unpack that. Just, let's unpack that for just a moment. More because that's an incredible story. It's 1944. Vogue approaches Pippin with a specific subject of the photo shoot in mind and commissions a, a, a painting from him. What was the photo shoot and what was the painting? Well, it was to promote cotton and uh, cotton dresses, and he was going to portray the sort of the manufacture of cotton, the, the whole process. He had done a series of paintings called The Cabin and the Cotton. And this was going to be sort of following in that realm. He had created these paintings that were more or less portraying sharecroppers in the South, uh, black sharecroppers, which was interesting because there had been a movie of the same name called Cabin in the Cotton that had white sharecroppers. And so he changed it and he interpreted it um, his own way. His paintings all entailed families sort of isolated from the cotton fields, sitting in front of the cotton fields. Not at work, and but at leisure, which was interesting. Um, they were usually resting after a day's work, it seemed, because they were mostly scenes at dusk. But anyway, Vogue asked him to do this, and he created a study and then the final painting, which is so unusual and interesting and beautiful. But they were unable to use it in the final issue in the way that they wanted because they it, it cost too much money to enlarge it for the photo shoot. So they did reproduce it in a small way in the in the uh, those magazines. So one of Pippin's major subjects is the American agricultural landscape, and I guess that exists in a couple ways, both both in terms of his own life and then in, and how he depicts farmers in 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 his paintings, maybe not rooted in his own own life. What what is his relationship with kind of pre-war American agriculture? Well, interestingly enough, he did work on a farm as a young boy um, when he moved. He was about 14 when he left uh, school, and he did work on a farm for a short time. We don't know much about that period at all. We just know that it wasn't a, a long period because he eventually had to uh, return to his home where his mother was ill, and he did a variety of jobs after that. But he did love the landscape, and he loved to fish, and we know we, he lived in Westchester, which is a town, but it's surrounded by country. And so he, was, he loved going out into the landscape, but he really had no connection to farming as far as we know. So it's interesting that he chose that subject, especially a southern subject, having been, we believe he went to the south once. But it was something that must have resonated with him and uh, had meaning beyond his own experience. You know, I sort of understand why Pippin is often or was often considered a folk artist because uh, and, and maybe agriculture is part of that. Maybe his interest in agricultural scenes is part of that. But he really does hit all of the subjects in American and European painting, whether it's portrait or, or, or non-agricultural landscape, genre painting, history painting. Absolutely, yes. He, he had saw those. Um, the history paintings emerged in the mid-1940s, and he had done many illustrations, or I should say paintings, of family life in that period. So he had this really broad range of subject matter that we 
that we have brought together in this exhibition. That was one of our major goals, was to really show the breadth of his work, ranging from his early work, which, of which there are some landscapes, and then some portraits, and then up until the end, when his work really starts to have more social commentary, in his later work especially. Let's get to that, that work, with, with the, that late career work, with lots of social, really interesting social content, sometimes hidden social content, as, as you point out in your essay. And, 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 and go back to the early work. Some of the earliest work in the show is of war. I imagine that some of these paintings are rooted in Pippin's own World War One experience. Yes, they all seem to be uh, in his experience. And the memoir that he made after the war, which we are just estimated to be 1920 because there's no way of knowing, but we know that he didn't produce it during the war, but it has six illustrations, and, that, and that's really the beginning of his war illustrations and war painting later on. Uh, 1930, he begins his very first oil painting, and that is the end of the war starting home, a really iconic work in his career. It took him three years because he was teaching himself how to paint in oil and also teaching himself how to paint with his disability. So that painting, um, as I said, took three years, and it's just this amazing, kind of almost a sculptural relief portrayal of war and the, the chaos of war, especially. The Germans are surrendering in the background in the trenches, and the soldiers in Pippin's regiment are advancing towards them. And there's planes falling from the sky. There's shells bursting. There's all this activity that's illuminated by the, by the sky. And you just get the feeling of the chaos of the moment. And he describes that in his journal as well. And with the painting, he not only does the painting, but he does the frame. And he carves elements of war into the frame, such as grenades and tanks and guns. And, and it overall just gives you that feeling of the, the tension of, the, of those moments in the battle. Um, and then he followed it up with other paintings as well. All of, we have one of the others in the show. Uh, some of them are not available, but we have two that we think are really emblematic of his experience. And as I said, he said that the war brought out all the art in him. Later in his career, when he started making social commentaries, as we discussed, the war comes back into his paintings in a, in a very different way. But they are still about World War One, even though World War Two is occurring at that moment. Yeah, one of the extraordinary things about Pippin's paintings of World War One is the way he represents planes, which is a subject that probably in less art about World War One than one might expect. I mean, Max Ernst famously, but but that's I don't know, that's one of my favorite things in those paintings. Skipping ahead a few years, I think in some ways Pippin's most ambitious painting is a roughly 1940-ish painting titled The Lady of the Lake, which is now at the Met. I mean, this strikes me as a pretty ambitious attempt to take on something European painters have done for centuries and bring it to the United States and and make it American. What is the painting? How did it happen? Does it work for you? Yeah, well, it's an interesting painting because it's actually a little earlier than 1940, which is significant because it's more or less before he's really discovered and is more or less working in obscurity at the time. And it is a landscape with this woman at the center, a nude, looking up into the sky, and she's uh, illuminated by the light. There's behind her this wonderful landscape, um, mountains and trees and a lake, and it's called Lady of the Lake, and I, I believe that is Pippin's own title. That can allude to a poem by Sir Walter Scar uh, Scott, which we don't know whether that influenced him or not, but we think that perhaps other popular images, calendars, for instance, may have been an influence on that work. He portrays the woman nude. That's the only nude that we know of him in his career, which is interesting in itself. And he surrounds her with this very kind of fantasy-like plants. In particular, there's a vase that has these playing card motifs on it. And it's, it's mysterious, and, and we, we wonder you know, where these are coming from. Are they coming from his imagination, or are they something that he saw? It's been suggested, somebody suggested to me that, well, they, he played cards in the war. You know, maybe that was something that stuck with him. I don't know, but I've never seen it in decorative arts, so I, I find it really fascinating. And there's a little bit of a Native American influence in there, too, in the canoe that is um, on the side of the house. 
and on the um, in the rug that is underneath the woman. So there's all these motifs that come together. Uh, he also may have been looking at Hudson River School artists. Uh, we don't know, but it certainly has that kind of composition that recalls Hudson River School artists like Frederick Church and uh, Bierstadt and some of the, the, the like the 19th century landscape painters. It's certainly more Clodian than, say, Western American art, but certainly the mountains in the back are much more Western than they are Eastern. I mean, one of the thing, one of the interesting things about the the painting to me is that you know it's a it's a clear reminder of how engaged with with art history Pippin was and in kind of all the things you just mentioned, kind of a strikingly modernist way. How did he end up getting kind of lumped in as a folky artist rather than a a modernist who was addressing the canon, which I think the show suggests over and over again? Well, I think that it's because his work is flat. It has limited perspective in some ways. And so instead of associating him with modernism, I think his work is associated with folk art maybe because of who he was and where he was coming from. He was not a, he was not trained in a, an institution. He was self-taught. He came from virtually nowhere. He was a black artist. And I think that mythology kind of grew around him. What we think is that he educated himself by looking at art. And he went to museums. Once he had gained fame, he went to all his openings, as far as we know. And we know that he did like Renaissance Northern painting. So he was looking around. He went to the Barnes Foundation at Albert C. Barnes' invitation. So I think all those influences play a part in his life, but he still was considered a folk artist. And I think people ignored the the sophistication that his work showed, not just in terms of style or composition, but in terms of meaning, especially in, in his histor- historical paintings and his paintings about war. There's more to it than just an ex- a pretty picture, if you will. You argue in your essay that people certainly missed lots of meaning in the Holy Mountain paintings. What, what are the Holy Mountain paintings and what does at least one of them hide? Right. Well, there's the Holy Mountain paintings, there's four of them. One is unfinished, and he started painting them in the 1940s. He was influenced by Edward Hicks. We know that his dealer, Robert Carlin, owned a number of Edward Hicks paintings, and Edward Hicks being the painter of the Peaceable Kingdom paintings. Many, many paintings in that, that theme were created by Hicks. So we know that Pippin saw them. We know that he took his in- inspiration, more or less, from the same passage in the Bible by Isaiah, um, in which he talks about the lion laying down with the child and this this peaceable world where the threat of you know, being a predator, of being preyed upon, is gone. There's a peacefulness, a coexistence among people and animals. So he took that from Hicks and from the Bible, but he adds something in the background that is just stunning and you don't see it at first. He has this whole other existence going on in the background where war is happening. And I think it's contrasting the peacefulness of the foreground in a way that has significant meaning to him. But basically what's happening in the background are uh, soldiers are running through the forest. Bombs are dropping from the sky. In one corner of the painting on the left side in several of the paintings, there is a figure hanging from a tree in a lynching. So... And then in the in the bottom corner of every of one of these paintings, he has a date that has a tie to World War II. One is Nagasaki, one is tied to the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and the other D-Day. So he was making this sort of uh, meditation on the world as it was and the world as he hoped it would be, as God in his mind hoped it would be. So I think that that is just sort of emblematic of his looking at the world, the way he looked at the world was he wanted peace. And he says that in a description that he wrote for the Holy Mountain series. He wrote a couple of letters to people to explain this whole series. And I think that, you know, they may have noticed it once he told them about it, but it was not immediately apparent. And I think that the overall meaning may have been lost on most of the people. You know, they still saw him as this sort of innocent, person who didn't have you know, any commentary to make on, on contemporary life. Yeah, once you see the lynched figure in that Hirshhorn painting, you can't not see it. 
And and finally, one of my favorite things in Pippin is is a small little kind of almost insignificant thing, but in his interiors there are always these remarkable rugs or carpets, mostly rugs. Any idea why that why those interested him, why he he loved coming up with these colorful floor patterns, whether whether they be rugs or carpets? Right, I'm looking at one right now and saying prayers, and you're right, they appear in a number of his paintings, and most of those are his childhood memory scenes, and we think that they were probably in his home, that they were part of the decorative, decorative oh, the aspect rugs of the home. Yeah, I think that they probably really existed, and he used those to bring color to the compositions, but I also wonder if there's some deeper meaning that we perhaps are missing. We often see the color red in his work and all the red runs through all of the car, uh, all of those rugs. And it seems to be, you know, a, a reminder of home, maybe a, a feeling of comfort and peace in, in looking back on his life. We see them in all of his interiors of his own life. There are some interiors that are not of his home, but are of his patrons, which are interesting too, um, and have a whole different kind of feel to them that reflect them. With his experience of life on the main line in Philadelphia, for example, visiting his patrons. Audrey Lewis, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.